You are listening to Hands at Work Audio. In this podcast, we hear from Bob Osborne, who is a pastor at Westside King's Church in Calgary, Canada. Bob is speaking about communion as central to the Christian faith at the Hands at Work Hub in South Africa. So I'm going to talk about communion today, or we call it the Lord's Supper, or we call it the Eucharist. And that word Eucharist is a beautiful word, as I'm going to say in just a few minutes. But we're going to talk about this central, core aspect of worship. It's a worship moment. And why it's so important and why it's endured through the generations. Jesus began it, we continue it, and there are reasons for it. And so I want to talk about how grounded in our Christian faith we can uh, be by the central practice of worship. Um, I... I've grown up in the church. I was a pastor's kid, so I always knew church life and always knew what it was to be around uh, the Christian faith, and I had a very good home growing up. But in Canada, something happened in the 1960s and 70s. There was a period of rebellion in the youth. It happened around the world. Um, And we wanted to throw away some old things, get rid of those old things, get some new things. We wanted it want a new world, wanted to change it. But you know, when you're, sometimes when you're young, or maybe you haven't had the wisdom of the years or wisdom of reflection, you can throw things away that you should have kept. So the story for me always was my grandparents who when they sold their home in Vancouver, Canada, they had this beautiful old home and old furniture made of beautiful wood right? And this was the 1970s, and they sold that old oak dining set and the old chairs, and they sold them off, and they bought some particle board furniture. I don't know if you know what that is. <laughs> In their little apartment, things they could move around easy and whatever. And we didn't value it. We let it all go. And, and now we say, why did we let all, that beautiful old, all those beautiful old things be sold so easily? Why didn't we value it? We didn't Sort of in that era, we didn't know what, what it was that was there, what should have been kept. And so as I've grown older, <laughs> sort of realized at one point I wanted everything new, now I'm starting to treasure the old things. And sometimes I'll go out on a hunt if I have a day off and I'll go look for some old things to find that maybe if they're in disrepair, I could maybe fix them up a little bit, shine them up, refinish, we call it in furniture. And then bring that piece back because that's beautiful, that's endured, that's quality, that's value. I want that. Um, A few years ago, I realized in the church and in the churches that I've been part of, we could do that all too easily. We could get rid of the old things because we're always saying new, new, new. And the strange thing is some of the new things that we're bringing in aren't really as good of quality as some of the old things that have been around for a long time. Maybe some of the old things needed to be polished up and dusted, right? Fixed up, shined up. Or maybe it was us that didn't see the value there. So um, when I went to the church that I'm part of now, that Mark and Lynn and Byron are part of, and Diane, Westside King's Church, we started something called Suburban Monastery, which monastery, of course, is an old form of being a community. In some some ways, I think you are, in some ways, a monastic community. I don't mean to scare you that way. But you are a community that is in worship and fellowship and community, and then you have a great, um, you know, um, motivation to 
to not only live this life together, but then out of this together life to go and serve the needs of this part of the world. That's what, often what monasteries did. So we called it Suburban Monastery. And I said, we want to go up in the attic. So I don't know if this even works in South Africa. I don't even know if you have attics. But an attic is a place up in an old house in Canada where you might store your old things. You put your old things up there. You know, the old pieces. And we're going to go up there. So this is just a picture. This is not real, right? We're going to go up there and we're going to look at the old things and see what old things we can bring back down here, dust them off, shine them up, and reuse them again. Because we, we might find some treasures up there. So that's what we started to do in that, in that program. And we wanted to introduce ourselves to the old things. And one of the key things is communion. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. It's important. When I was here in 96, I taught uh, at a Bible college up near Zanin in uh, Linyenyi. Does anybody know where Linyenyi is? I've been asking around, nobody knows. You've heard of it at least? You've heard of it, <laughs> that's great. And I had a wonderful time there. And the churches that were, that, uh, the students that I was teaching, their churches didn't often celebrate communion because they were afraid of the parts in 1 Corinthians 11 where it talked about judgment. If we did this or ate this bread or drank this cup in an unworthy manner, we'd, we would bring judgment upon ourselves. I remember as a child being afraid of communion at sometimes because the pastor would make me fearful. If there's anything wrong with you, you better get it right now because we're going to take communion. <laughs> I'd be afraid. I think there is a seriousness about this. We ought to examine ourselves. We ought to realize this holiness of what we're partaking in. But it is the holiness of all of life, right? So I'm going to go through some categories today to help us understand what we're doing, some basic understandings of category about communion. And then we're going to take our break and we're going to get our coffee or tea or whatever and have some talk. And then I'm going to show us how in all of the feeding stories of Jesus, so when he multiplied the bread to the 4,000 and the 5,000, how all those feeding stories, how the Lord's Supper, how when Paul teaches on communion in 1 Corinthians 11, and even in what we call the Emmaus Road uh, journey, you might have remembered that, how in all these feeding moments, whenever Jesus is eating, there's the same shape that takes place. Four things happen. It's always the same. It's amazing. It would either be an amazing coincidence, or they saw that this eating with Jesus and with each other meant something to us in a basic way. It grounded us in our Christian identity in a basic way. So that'll be the second half today. And then we're going to practice this beautiful act of worship. Worship is so much more than singing, right? We know that. Worship is when we go out and we're serving. Worship is how we live, right? Romans 12, present your bodies, right? As living acts of worship. Present your very selves, right? But there are key moments that sort of center us and focus in, us in on what worship is. So communion is definitely one of them. So I want us to understand this today um, and, uh, about this beautiful thing. All right, do I need to say anything about myself? I'm a father. I have two grown daughters, 27 and 24. So we are what we call empty nesters, right? Just my wife and I at home. And uh, my wife is uh, a, a nurse, registered nurse. She's been nursing for over 30 years. And she's the really caring one. <laughs> she's amazing. Uh, she's God's gift to me. 
in so many ways. And so we've had a very, very happy marriage, and I'm a blessed man. And as I said, I came from a pastor's home and uh, very wonderful parents who live in Canada and Victoria. And uh, they uh, are so happy uh, that their son is a pastor. <laughs> um, and they're uh, getting to the, towards the end of their lives now. Uh, so, you know, you have this sense at times of sitting in blessing, and we're going to rehearse that as part of what this communion meal is, this experience of blessing. So let me go through some basic concepts, and I think I've got a way to show this. Uh, this basic text, is it coming? So maintaining our Christian shape. Where should I point this thing? Point it there? Point it there. So this is part of the text we're going to use right now as we go through seven you know, key components of the communion meal. It's probably the most familiar passage that's read at, at the time that the church would take communion. Paul's instructions to the Corinthians. And uh, if you know a little bit about the community at Corinth, it was a dynamic community full of life, but it had a lot of problems too, didn't it? Do you know that about Corinth? Corinth had a lot of life and a lot of problems. And Paul is giving this instruction to the Corinthians to order their life together because they were out of order. They weren't doing this well. But, you know, if you read it just as a problem, you're going to miss the reason why Paul wants to talk to them about it. He wants to set it back in order, right? He wants to put it in order again so that it's operating in a way that's life-giving and is reminding them of who they are and what this is about, what it means to be a Christian community. <laughs> So the context surrounding this piece is about how they're doing it wrong <laughs> and how he really wants them to get it right. But don't miss the center, the kernel of it all, what it is we're looking for. So I'm going to take this central passage of this text out of 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read these verses, and then we're going to break down seven ideas out of here that we need to really understand, okay? So here's the text. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a good passage to probably study quite intensely. So, what I want to talk about are seven things, and I'm going to just write them down as I go. The first one is this. Tradition. So, I grew up thinking tradition was bad. We don't want to be traditional. <laughs> How many have grown up with any kind of thought like that? <laughs> the language Paul is using here, let me go back. For I received, right, received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. 
These two words, received and passed on, are very particular words that they would have understand as what we call tradition, transmission, passing on something of value. It's absolutely, it would be technical language for that. So without getting into Greek, just understand that. This matters, here you go, <laughs> take it and treasure it. And when I was a little boy, my grandfather gave me a 100-year-old train whistle from England. I was 11 years old. Here, Bobby, that's what they call it. Here's my precious train whistle, don't lose it. And I went and promptly lost it. And he was sad for that. And now, and, and when I was 11, I didn't really know. I had it in my pocket, and I'm playing, and I lost it. Um, and now I'm really sad that I lost that, that old whistle. So here it is. I'm passing it on. Receive it, right? Paul is standing in a line of tradition. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He has received something. He's passing it on to the believers at Corinth. And I grew up... Uh, in a form of Christian faith that was always trying to break from tradition, always trying to break out and do something new. I don't think we entirely were without tradition, but we weren't thinking clearly enough to understand what are the traditions that we have to preserve and what are the things that are just for now and need to change. You know, there's things like the way we dress or the songs we sing or whatever. Some of those things are just here for now and, and maybe they go later. But there's other things that have to endure. And we have to know the difference. We have to be wise enough to know the difference. And so the communion meal is centrally Christian. We have to understand this. This is at the heart of what has to be passed on. Do you know uh, the idea of a relay race? So the baton, right? And you know how it works, especially in, um, I think all relay races are the same. But you can really see this in the sprints where they actually have line marked off where you can start to pass it off and a line where you, have, you must pass it by then. And if you haven't got it in your hand, if the next runner doesn't have it in their hand, they're disqualified. This often happens in the generations. We have so long to pass these things off. So here it is. And, and here's the thing about the relay race. Do it definitively. Boom, there it is. No guessing, no fumbling. <laughs> right? Sometimes people are just a little hesitant and they drop it. Here it is. Take it. Now hold on to it and run with it. And when it comes to the time for you to pass it off, pass it off and give it. This passing on is so important. It's part of our tradition. Uh, it's part of our Christian faith. So we see the church not only as all the people who are worshiping Jesus right now, but we talk about the communion of the saints, all those who have gone before us and all those who will follow us until Jesus comes. All of this matters. So tradition passing on tradition, the scriptures, we could say, tradition, uh, worship, service, community, all these things. Think of the communion meal that way, and it's a core tradition. It must be received faithfully and passed on definitively. So I suppose there's times we need to make a distinction between tradition, and here's a little nuance, traditionalism. I don't know if that confuses everybody, but Traditionalism is just holding on to everything from the past, not having a sense of what ought to be new and what ought to be thrown away, right? That kind of thing. But tradition is a living expression of truth. And for 2,000 years, the church has done this. And I wouldn't want to be, in my generation, the one who fumbles the race. 
forever the church has been practicing communion at the center of its worship. Forever. And I don't want to be that generation who dropped the baton. I want to really make this an emphasis for my ministry. We do this together. Now, here's the thing. People have different understandings of this, right? And sometimes people have fought and divided over this. And that's unfortunate. But what Jesus called us to do is do this. We're going to do it together, right? And we're definitely going to do it. So the next thing I want to talk about is authority. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. And what's interesting in this text is um, that it repeats the word Lord, or kurios in the Greek, seven times in this whole passage. If you counted them up, seven times from the Lord. The Lord on the night he was betrayed. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. This is so authoritative. It's from Jesus. It has so much weight to it. Um, and that there are those moments when you really want to be very careful that you're not throwing those weighted things away. Um, what Paul is passing on to the Corinthians and what he wants to strengthen them in is nothing less than Christ's authority in the practice of worship. Do this. Repeat it twice. Do this. Do this. From the Lord, do this. This is what Jesus did. This is what he told us to do. Do this. And it's endured for generations, as I've said. And it's as simple and as basic as bread and wine, or for other Christians, juice. <laughs> but the bread and the wine, simple as that. It's as ancient as the ancient church, and then it goes back into the roots of Israel, into the Passover meal. It's long-standing. It's as simple as table fellowship. You're, we're all sitting at table, which I don't know if you thought of that, but this is really good that we're sitting at tables today. And everything is level at the table. If you all stood up, you'd probably be like this, different heights, you know. But when you sit at table, you notice you're more level, more so. It's harder to see height uh, when you're sitting down. It's a leveling experience. It's an open experience, table fellowship. We're open to each other. Uh, we could do a study on Jesus and food. I mean, it's one of the core things Jesus did. Come and eat with me, or I'm coming to your house to eat. Right? It's such a beautiful thing, Jesus and food. And we're to do this. We're not told how. That's the interesting thing. There's lots of variety in this. Um, when we say bread, there are varieties of bread that people might use um, in our imagination. And the same with the wine. And the same, the way that we do it or put it together, there's not a prescribed way, but we're to do it. But it's authoritative. The Lord told us to do it. And it actually teaches us the shape of our faith. It's beautiful. It's the shape of our faith. And I'm going to get into that after, um, after our break. Worship informs our faith. The way we worship 
shows us what our faith is. And this practice shows us something definitely about our faith. The fact that we are together, the fact that we're open to each other, the fact that Christ is our center, the fact that Christ is our gift, the fact that Christ uh, teaches us about the center of what he's done for us and that there is something to say in light of this, a proclamation to be made. It informs our faith. So, authority. And then, context. I hope these aren't, I hope they're words that we can understand somewhat. Context means what? The setting or where this happens, right? The setting. And this is fascinating to me. Um, Lord Jesus, when? On the night he was betrayed. It's a very moving part of this for me. On the night he was betrayed. It's the setting. What's the setting of the communion meal? The last night of Jesus with his followers in the upper room, gathering together. In John's gospel, there's no communion meal told. There's um, the long passage in John chapter 6 where he teaches on, I am the bread of life. But in John's gospel from chapter 13 to chapter 17, there's a long <coughs> teaching part. But at the very beginning, they sit down to eat the meal, and Jesus gets up before the meal, wraps himself with a towel, right? And he starts to wash his disciples' feet. Do you remember that? That's the setting of the Last Supper. The setting is on the night he was going to be betrayed by who? By one of his own. One of his own friends is going to tell the authorities where he is. On that night, he washes his disciples' feet, he ministers to them, and he serves this meal, and he gives this interpretation of what the bread and the wine mean. That's the setting. On the night he's betrayed, the setting is amazing. And I don't know how you've experienced this, but some of my most extraordinary encounters with God or experiences of worship have been in some of the most difficult moments of my life. Um, sometimes you sense God more in a hospital room than you do <laughs> at the beach or, or whatever that is. That you sense God in times of difficulty. This is the setting for true worship. This is the setting. So it's not when we feel like it, when we need it, and we need it all the time. Do you remember Paul singing in prison in Acts 16? It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. But let me tell you a story about Richard Wormbrand, who was a pastor who spent 14 years in prison in Romania for his faith um, under the communist regime at the time. And I have always loved um, this passage. So I'm going to read something for you. Um, so the communists um, believed that there was no spirit, there was no more, that all that there was is physical, right? All there was is just what you can touch and feel. And therefore, our happiness should be dependent on how much we have or how much we own, right? All those kind of things. Happiness wouldn't be a spiritual thing. So this is what Richard Wormbrand writes when he was in prison. He says, the communists believe that happiness comes from material satisfaction. But alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I danced for joy every night. So here's this pastor in prison, dancing for joy every night in this prison. 
Words alone have never been able to say what a man feels in the nearness of divinity or the nearness of God. Sometimes I was so filled with joy that I felt I would burst if I did not give it expression. I remembered the words of Jesus. Blessed are you when men come to hate you, when they exclude you from their company and reproach you and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. <laughs> I told myself, so he's just been reading the words of Jesus. I told myself I've carried out only half the day, uh, half the command. I've rejoiced, but that is not enough. Jesus clearly <laughs> says that we must also leap. <laughs> I think they get this in Africa more than we do in Canada. So he says, I, I was so filled with joy, and then I'm reading these words of Jesus where he says, Blessed are you when people exclude you and persecute you. Leap for joy. And then he says, when next the guard peered through the spy hole, he saw me springing about my cell. So the guard is looking into the prison. He sees this old pastor jumping around his cell. And he's a communist. He thinks, well, how could this man be happy? He's in prison. He should be very sad, right? His orders must have been to distract anyone who showed signs of breakdown. So he went off and returned with some food from the staff room, a hunk of bread, some cheese, and sugar. And he sort of threw them in the room. And as I took them, Word Rand writes, I remembered how the verse in St. Luke went on, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is very great. <laughs> it was a very large piece of bread, more than a week's ration. So here's this man who should be sad by all accounts of how you define material existence. He should be really sad. His freedom has been taken away. But because he's with God in that place, because God has entered in his heart, he says, not only was I filled with joy, but then I was hearing the words of Jesus said, you shouldn't only rejoice, but you should leap. And he said, so I started to express it with my body, the joy of God, right? And then he says, the prison guard who didn't understand went off and threw some food in there thinking I'm going crazy I better help this man it's just beautiful and it bears the imprint of spiritual authority for me this kind of story touches me at a place that goes very deep because in context you'd think well how could I worship in such severe conditions and on the night that Jesus we betrayed he took bread and entered into this moment of worship with his disciples the context is surprising and the lesson is that worship doesn't require ideal conditions. Quite far from that. You will understand that in less than ideal conditions, somehow your heart will suddenly break open to the presence of God with you, and you know His presence and His nearness. And this is what we do at the communion table. We're reminded that Jesus worships then, on the night He was betrayed. So now here's this beautiful word. I'll write it down here. Eucharist. So we have several names for what we're doing here. The Lord's table. Right? Communion. And then some traditions uh, refer this to as Eucharist, which is the Greek word for thanksgiving. Eucharisteo means to give thanks. On the night Jesus was betrayed... He gave thanks. That changes me. I don't know how it affects you. And then I had to do a little research. When did Jesus give thanks in the Gospels? Do you know when Jesus gave thanks in the Gospels? 
when there was a multitude of people and there wasn't enough food for them. A little boy came along with his little lunch and Jesus took the lunch and he gave thanks. He gave thanks for the little bit. He gave thanks for the amount that wasn't enough. He gave thanks for the small boy's lunch. That's when he gave thanks. You know where else he gave thanks? At the tomb of his friend Lazarus. So he went to Bethany and his friend had died and Mary and Martha were there. Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then comes a conversation between Jesus and Martha, right? Do you believe? I believe. <laughs> Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and the shortest verse in the Bible that I learned as a boy, the shortest verse of the Bible, do you know what it is? Jesus wept. And in John's gospel, the word there is, is a heart-wrenching cry. It's almost like uh, the snort of a horse. It's that, <gasps> that kind of cry. It was a deep, guttural cry. Jesus, Jesus let out an, uh, his grief. And then he said, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. That's the second time Jesus gave thanks. Eucharist. This is the third time. Where did Jesus give thanks? When he only had a little bit. Where did Jesus give thanks? At the tomb of his friend who had died. But he thanked God that God had heard him. And Jesus gave thanks on the night he was betrayed. In context, it's incredible. The setting is incredible for this. It's not ideal. It's never ideal. But it, somehow God breaks through the cloud of bad circumstances and teaches us something. Amen. All right, I won't be forever. <laughs> um, sacrament. Here's another big word. You've heard this word. So in my Christian tradition, we have two sacraments. And some Christian traditions, they have seven sacraments. But I'm interested in the idea of sacrament as a thing itself. So in my Christian tradition, the two sacraments were communion and baptism. So what's a sacrament? A sacrament is a physical, touchable, tangible, visible, something you can see, something you can touch, something you can feel, right? So like communion, we're going to take it. We're going to chomp, chomp, chomp. You can feel it on your tongue, right? You taste it. It's real. Drink. <laughs> Drink, chomp, right? It's touchable. Baptism in the water. You go, you feel the water. You get all wet, right? You go under the water. You come out. You, you feel it. But we say these are sacraments because they're not just physical things. They're physical things with a spiritual center, spiritual meaning. Okay? And that matters. And at the core of Christianity, so let me say in the text then, um, Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He didn't just say, bow your heads and pray, right? He took bread. Feel it. Give him thanks, he broke it. 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup. Whenever you drink it, I mean, it's physical, right? It's touchable. And at the core of Christianity, we have to say there's a sacrament of life. Physical, material things have spiritual meaning, right? So Jesus said, a cup of cold water in my name. Spiritual meaning. To give bread, to help someone, to smile. <laughs> All, everything we do physically matters. It's got spiritual significance to it. Um, and you can go through the scriptures and see how this works. The day we received, right? This is the day the Lord has made. Every day matters. All of this is the way that we see God is not away from creation, but God is with us in creation, in our physical lives, in our relationship to each other, the way we touch each other, sacrament. And so after the break, I'm going to talk about the shape of the communion and how this teaches us something through the shape of all this. So I'll talk about that more later. So sacrament. So it's physical. We have to teach ourselves that what we do physically, how we talk, how we relate. Um, I don't know how it is in Africa in terms of the big cities, but you know there's so many people on the streets, and you're walking down the street, and someone comes by. We don't tend to see people on the street in the city. There's too many people, so you can't smile. But sometimes I've just become very aware I am in a crowded city. And guess, you know what happens in places with lots of people? People can feel lonely. It's a strange thing. You think, well, you're lonely when you're in the country walking along an isolated road. That's when you'd feel lonely. You, you don't. You feel lonely when you're with so many people. Does anybody see you? Does anybody notice you? Right? So a smile or just to see somebody is a sacrament. Because you're saying... The physical smile, the physical touch, the noticing of somebody matters. You know in Acts chapter 3, when Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray in the afternoon, and there's a beggar that had been there for years, and he's begging, <laughs> and he asks Peter and John for something. And you know that story, it's where Peter says, silver and gold we don't have, but such as we have, we give to you, right? But it says in that text, you need to notice this, Peter looked directly at him. He saw him. He looked at him. And then it says the man's faith rose. He saw him. That's a sacrament. The sacrament of seeing. <laughs> the sacrament of touching. The sacrament of smiling. The sacri Knowing that in the physical world that we live in, everything we do matters. All that we touch and feel. So we rehearse that in communion and baptism. We're saying... These physical things have spiritual significance. When someone is baptized, and I had the privilege of baptizing Diane. That was a wonderful thing. But when we're doing that, there's a moment where we're saying, this physical action is not just physical. It's a spiritual bonding with our Father in Jesus Christ, right? But then let's not just leave it there, okay? We want to extend this to all of life. We want to have the sacrament of our ministry, okay? Mission. So you see what's happening as we go through this. We're teaching ourselves the faith in communion. We're teaching ourselves what it is to believe and what, what, we, what we do believe as Christians. So mission. 
So what does Paul say? He says, here's the mission. Here's the things we preach. His body, which is for us. So we are talking about Christ's gift to the world. This is what we preach. Uh, he's saying, talking about a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man. So God has made a new agreement with us through Christ, and that's what we're celebrating in the, in the bread and the cup. And then whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a proclamation. We're preaching. As, as we are together taking this, we're saying something over and over again. Um, and that's a beautiful part of, of what we're doing. So it's a missional thing. It's an acted sermon, right? And that's uh, it's very important. Um, and of course, the heart of the proclamation is, is Jesus for us, the Jesus who dies and rises again. That's why I love this strange statement. It's a very paradoxical statement. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> you see how strange that is? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The dying and rising Jesus, the victorious Jesus. There's a proclamation to be made. So the church proclaims what? The forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name through his death and his resurrection. But the church also proclaims his coming kingdom. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming. And there's going to be a change. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here, but it comes. And one day, all of this will be different. This is our hope. So that's the sixth thing. Hope. And I would just refer to that same text that I've just talked about. Uh, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, the sense of hope. And I think that then communion is water for the soul. When our strength is flagging, when our spirit is weary, when we sense that uh, discouragement of life, uh, we realize that we live by hope and we must live by hope and our hope is renewed every time we come to the communion meal. And... And so true Christian faith is hopeful. It steadies ourselves in the hope of the future, the hope of God with us. And so therefore, we have to remind ourselves over and over again of God's faithfulness. So I want to read you something from Philip Yancey um, out of his book, Reaching for the Invisible God. So we say, God, where are you? We can't see you. And communion reminds us of his presence with us. Even as we eat and we drink and we see each other, God is faithful. So Philip Yancey writes about a moment he went to a place in America called Yellowstone Park. And uh, there's a, a, a famous geyser there, this phenomenon in nature where every, I forget what it is, it's like, it's, it's like you can set it by a clock. They, that's why they call it uh, old faithful, because every 60 minutes or whatever it is, the water shoots out of the ground. 
because what happens, it's a natural phenomenon where this water heats up and then it comes to a certain temperature and then it just shoots out of this hole in the ground. So it's something to see, right? And, but they call it Old Faithful because it's just regular clockwork. So he's there and this is what he says. He writes in his book. Um, On a visit to Yellowstone National Park, it jarred me to see, posted beside Old Faithful, a large digital clock counting down to the next eruption. Old Faithful's eruption should be a natural, not a stage phenomenon, I reasoned. Though I did admit that the clock helped to build the anticipation. And all these tourists surrounded the spot. And the video cameras were trained on the hole where the water would shoot out, right? And the minutes ticked down, not 10, 9, 8, 7. And he was thinking like a rocket launching, right? And so he was watching one eruption up close and then they went to a restaurant that had a big window they could look out over this. And when the digital clock reached one minute, everybody got up from their table and went to the window to watch this. All this water shooting out of the ground, you know. And everybody was applauding and, wow, this is wonderful. And then he looked back and he saw all these people who waited on the tables and filled the water glasses. And while all the tourists watched it and, and went, ooh, and ah, all the other people who had been there for so long, just, oh, it's regular life. It's just the way it is. <coughs> old, old faithful shooting off again. Oh, well. <laughs> Seen it a million times. They had grown all too casual to it, right? All too familiar with it. It had lost its power to impress them. They'd seen it too many times. They weren't impressed anymore. So he was just saying to us, the community of Jesus needs a way to rehearse over and over again the sense of the faithfulness of God and to be impressed over and over again with the way God is faithful to us, how he leads us, how he helps us. So that is hope. And then finally... Um, renewing community. Community needs to be renewed. Um, And that's what communion does for us. Um, So think of all the words I've said communion. So do you notice that communion and community have the same root. So think of all these words. Community. Communion. Communication. Common. Common means what we share. We're all persons. We're all made in God's image. We all share. We have different things in our lives, but then we have all common things. We all need forgiveness, right? We all need hope. We all need a place to belong. Community, communion, communication, (laughs) common. It's an interesting thing to look at all those words and how they relate. So communion is important for community. And I think that's important. So then how we eat matters. And I know in this country, there was a practice of when people came to eat, they separated. If anywhere needs communion, South Africa, right? We need communion in South Africa. We need to come together and eat together. This is what Jesus did. He always broke down the barriers by saying, we're going to eat together. 
That's why communion is a, it's a prophetic thing. It says something to the whole world that we have community because we are in communion, because we are, have a common human life. That's important, and it renews community. And so communion is so aware of our humanity that we're in this together and that we need to do this continually. So I have many, many words here to say, and I think I should just stop right now. But uh, this is a renewing practice when we do that. You know, some Christians do this every time they meet. Some do this every Sunday. Some do this once a month. And some do this just every so often. But Paul says, as often as you do this, whenever you choose to do this, you're doing something very powerful and specific for yourselves. You're rehearsing the long story you're part of. You're passing something on that's been given to you. This has been given to you. It's been given to you by the generations. Don't drop it. <laughs> Grab it. Hold on to it. Pass it on. It's got authority. What's the authority? It's the Lord. The Lord. Seven times in that text, the Lord gives this. The Lord passes on. So even Paul here, when he says, the Lord gave this to me, this is not something he just had a vision of. When he says this, actually, it's something he received from the church. Paul himself had revelations of Jesus, but he, do you remember when upon his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem to be with the leaders and teachers of the church. This is where he would have received this practice. And then in a context, well, what's the context? What's the, where are we in life? Well, what's the context of hands at work? What's the context of your ministry and your communal life here together? Um, that's fascinating. There's always a context. Some are happy, some are sad, but we come together and we practice this and find that worship always has a way to break through into our lives. The Lord's presence has a way to break through into our lives. It's a sacrament. It's teaching us that all physical things can be presenced with God. This day can be presenced with God. All that we do is presence with God. It is a missional thing. It helps us rehearse what it is we're about, what we're proclaiming, what we're saying, uh, the essence of the gospel of Christ for us, Christ forgiving sins, but Christ coming again. It's a hopeful thing, and it renews our life together. It always renews. One of the essential practices of communion is to look into your own heart, confess your own sins, right? It always reminds us of that. We come to God and say, I am not worthy, but now I receive your gift of forgiveness. We're always coming back to that very central piece. And then we look around and we see our brothers and sisters and we realize to be forgiven, to be a child of God means I must be in relationship with others. So it's continually renewing community. There's so many ways we can get off track in terms of our understanding of what Christianity is, what the gospel is. And there's so many variations of Christian faith and so many variations of religion. And some way along the line in my understanding as a pastor, I realized that one of the best things I could ever do for people was to serve them communion and teach them what was going on here. It was God's gift to my pastoral life to do this well. This was going to help us keep our Christian shape. So um, somewhere along the line, I realized that it was one of the best things and one of my favorite things to do is to teach and lead into communion. 
And then somewhere along the line in my studies and my reading, I, I came across an old book written in 1946 called The Shape of the Eucharist. And it was a profound biblical study, which I'm going to show you right now how it works in the text, how there's a shape, in, as I mentioned at the beginning, in all the feeding stories, in all of the feeding stories, and then the way that the communion is taught us in the scriptures, both as instruction, like what we just read from Paul's instruction to the Corinthians, but then the Lord's Supper, the way it's told in the Gospels, and then even in the Emmaus Road experience where Jesus becomes host at the meal with the Emmaus Road disciples. So, uh, this is a beautiful thing. I want to keep my Christian shape. I, wanna, I don't want to get out of shape. I don't want to start thinking wrongly or practicing wrongly. I want to stay basic. I want to stay true. And then just like exercise, you always come back to the same thing. I'm going to walk. I'm going to push weights. I'm going to run. Whatever I'm going to do. I'm going to do the same things over and over again with communion. I'm going to come back to this meal. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to realize who I am before God, who my brothers and sisters are, and live that out. So, here is the interesting piece of understanding. So this is feeding the 5,000. So there were two feeding, miraculous feeding stories in the Gospels, right? The 5,000 and the 4,000. So I'm going to take these two from Matthew, but you could see them in the other Gospels in the same way. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. So that's the feeding of the 5,000. So now it doesn't come out so well in color, but you can see the underlying pieces here. Taking, so he takes the bread, and then he gives thanks. That's Eucharist, Eucharisteo in the Greek, giving thanks. And then he breaks the bread. And then he gives the bread, okay? So now we're going to get into the shape. Take, give thanks, or bless, give thanks, break, and give. The feeding of the 4,000. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. So let's notice the shape again. He took, when he had given thanks, he broke, and he gave. Okay, so, so this is the memory piece coming out of here today. Right? Take, give thanks, break, give. This is the Last Supper as it's told in the Gospels. Uh, this is in Matthew. When they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Isn't that amazing how the feeding stories are connected to the Eucharist? Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now you can see how this text is connected to what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul has a similar language. But here's the thing. You notice this re repetition and order of these words again. Take, give thanks, break, and give. So you start to realize maybe something's going on here. In fact, in some of my New Testament studies, I started to realize not only with this issue, but other issues, there were forms and patterns in the New Testament that, they, that repeated themselves. Um, 
And I could talk to you later about some of those things, but there were there are forms embedded in the scriptures that we need to take seriously. And this is obviously one of them. There's something going on here that the New Testament community is saying, here's the shape, here's the shape of our meal. Okay? So here's the Lord's Supper that we just read as Paul taught the Corinthians. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it. Now we don't see give here but it's give is implied. This is my body which is for you. So the giving here is implied in this text. You can see take, give thanks, break and now the implication of my body is for you. The giving of Jesus to us. He gives himself to us. We see this pattern over and over again. Now, this is the Emmaus uh, Supper. Do you know the story at the end of Luke's Gospel of the two disciples walking along the road? And it's, uh, they are leaving Jerusalem after the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's the, it's the first day of the week. And so the crucifixion happened on, let's say, the Friday. And on the Saturday or the Sabbath, if they were good religious Jews, they would not have traveled anywhere. They stayed right where they were. And on the first day of the week, now they're heading home. And they're downcast, but they've heard some reports. <laughs> but they're in a state of confusion. They're going home to Emmaus, and suddenly this stranger comes alongside them. What are you talking about? They didn't recognize, but it was Jesus. It was the resurrected Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful stories. I, I love to talk about this story. And he says, don't you know the things that have happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus says one of my favorite things. Jesus says, what things? I love that. Oh, and they go into their story. And then Jesus takes it in another direction. But don't you know how, and he starts with Moses and all the prophets. He tells them what's really going on. They're giving their perspective. He gives them his resurrection perspective. So one of the most beautiful things I have in front of my desk at home where I sit and study, I have a picture of the Emmaus Road disciples in Jesus because I always, in my heart, I want to walk along the road as he teaches me the scriptures, <laughs> all that's said concerning him. It's a beautiful image of learning from Christ. Walking together, there's two disciples, so we walk with each other, and Jesus comes into our company and teaches us. But look what, as they approach the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going far, farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It's just a beautiful story. But look at this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So we've seen this now repeated. There's something going on here, right? So let's talk about this then. Take, give thanks, break, give. Just talk about this for a moment. And then we're going to have communion together. And I would say, suggest that this is the shape of the communion meal. And it's the shape of our Christian lives. So we start with take or I want to call it the way of grace. So here's the interesting thing. The first movement of the Christian life is that God receives us. He takes us. He just takes us. I don't know how you prepare communion or how it happens to you, but you go to the store and buy some ordinary bread or crackers or whatever you do, right? And you, 
and you go get some juice or some wine or whatever you do for the drink. You just take something common off the shelf, right? It doesn't drop out of heaven. It's not manna, right? It's common stuff. You just take off the shelf something common, right? Isn't that what we do? And this is what we do with communion. We just take something common. We just take it, and now we make it more. And this is what God does with us. He just takes us, regular people, receives us. Um, he takes us. We offer ourselves. This is what goes on in the scriptures. But we bring to God what is common and ordinary and unremarkable. It's not like when you go down to the store to get your communion bread, you go, now which is the special bread? Are you that mystical? Oh, the special bread. God lead me to the special bread. If you're that mystical, then you probably have a hard time getting through life, right? You take what is common, what is ordinary. And God takes what is common and ordinary, the bread that comes from the field, the wine that comes from the vine, and is ordinary, and Jesus lifts it up and raises it up. So God just takes the common. That's a beautiful way of grace. And that's how we begin our Christian life. We take what is ordinary. There's nothing special here. It's not what we start with. It's not like God is not starting with precious material. He starts with common material, and he makes it special. And we see all of life that way then. This is, this is how then the communion meal in the taking part Reminds us over and over and over and over again, as often as we do this, what's going on. Over and over again. Start with the common. Start with the unremarkable. Start with that which is ordinary. And then God will infuse it with something special. God will fill us as his creatures with his spirit. But at first, we're not so remarkable. <laughs> And aren't the Bible stories always that way? God starts with the unremarkable. That's why sometimes in the Bible stories, it's the youngest that God, you know, God upsets the natural birth order. It's not the oldest and the strongest. It's the youngest. That happens often. And so this is what we're saying in sacrament. We're saying in sacrament that God takes ordinary bread and wine. God takes ordinary water and ordinary people. And with those ordinary objects, he fills them with himself and makes them special. And it's all of grace. And then bless. So take that's ordin what's ordinary, and then what does Jesus do immediately? He takes the ordinary, and then he gives thanks for it. Or the way we can also say it is he blesses it. So sometimes it's interpreted that way. He blesses it. He gives thanks for it. And this is the second movement, and this is how we have to then Immerse ourselves and teach ourselves basic Christian shape. Um, and we realize as we're going to come to the communion table this morning that we're coming into a place of blessing now. And we say it's an ordinary morning. It's a nice morning, but it's not an extraordinary morning. It was just another day. And then this ordinary day becomes a moment of encountering the living God, God with us. And we find we're entering into a place of blessing. And it's repeated over and over again. And we realize we're being brought back to the original design of everything. Do you remember in Genesis 1? God making things, and it's good. It's good. Good, good, good. All, all repeated through Genesis 1. Everything is good. And you say, well, where did all the good go? I go out, and I see lots of pain and suffering, and 
sadness. Where did the good go? But I'm being brought back in the communion meal to the purpose of God for blessing and thanksgiving. And so we come to the table, like John 13, with dirty feet. <laughs> and Jesus takes us as we are, and he washes us, and he prays over us, and he blesses us. It's one of my favorite things to be part of is blessing as a pastor. And blessing is not just uh, fixing you up so you can run along, but it's that you are valuable. You are valuable. Sometimes we're coming to Jesus for healing or for help or whatever, as if he's just going to give us what we want so we can run away. No, it's we are valuable. He's saying to us, you are valuable. I love you. It's you I want. And we're being brought back into this mystery then as Jesus takes the ordinary and he gives thanks for it and he blesses it. So the bread, he's doing that with, but most profoundly he's doing that with us. He's taking us and blessing us. And we're sitting at this table and we realize this is a feast. Okay, we just have a little bread and wine. We say, no, but there's a feast going on here. The table is loaded with good things. There's forgiveness. There's purpose. There's meaning. There's love. There's insight. There's knowledge. There's guidance. There's a hope. There's a future. This is a feast that's going on here. So you look at the table and you think, wow, my goodness, what would I like to try today? <laughs> I need some hope today. I need, I need forgiveness today. I need guidance today. It's all going on at the table. This is a lavish spread. And what did Jesus say at the Last Supper? I'm not going to eat again of this meal until we sit down in the kingdom of my Father and we're going to have the grand feast. It's all there. Jesus said he wouldn't drink of the cup again until that time. We are to continually drink this cup, but he's going to stop until we're all together with him. And the feast that's to come, it's a beautiful hope, a beautiful anticipation. And we do all this in the presence of others. We're to do this together. So blessing, bless, bless. We give thanks for each other. Thanks to God for our own lives. And we bless. And now the strange moment. The moment we have to admit is the strange part of our Christian faith. Break. And if we're not upset at times with our Christian faith, we ought to be. We ought to be scandalized by it. We ought to be moved in our hearts. And when we really consider the breaking that God does. And so God sent his son into the world, the perfect, loved son. And Jesus always knew the acceptance and love of his father. So at the baptism, the words came from heaven. This is my son whom I'm well pleased, right? On the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son, hear him. You know, he'd been teaching his disciples and they were resisting what he was saying. And the father says to the, Peter and John, listen to him, right? Always has that sense of favor and blessing on the son. And then Jesus knows that the father is leading him through a certain thing that's going to happen. We could talk about this for a long time, but let's just say this. He knows he must go to Jerusalem to be rejected, rejected, put to death, cruelly treated. Injustice would come his way. And he enters into that suffering in the, in the garden, right? In Gethsemane. Take this cup from me. 
Take this cup because this cup is not merely a blessing and forgiveness. There's something of breaking in this cup. There's something of breaking, of course, in the bread. And it's the strange thing that happens in the gospel, that God would bring us into his future through the breaking, which he does in the Son. And Jesus hangs on the cross and says these most amazing words as he repeats Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the breaking of fellowship with God. He experiences the brokenness of his own soul. In fact, I would suggest that Jesus in his own mind is feeling the darkness and the abandonment of God. But how can we even understand that? How can we even fathom that? We can't. There's a mystery here that we can only watch, right? We can't fully understand it. Um, we can say many words about it, but finally there's a mystery about this. But what God chooses to do and what God must do and what Jesus says must happen, he says this to disciples over and over again, the Son of Man must <laughs> be rejected, must be put to death. It's necessary, right? And the truth, of, the truth of all of this is this is a spirituality or a way of relating to God that is strange and we have to admit it. Um, it's the breaking. So the question now will be, now that we've been received, see, it starts with grace and blessing. And only in that context now will God lead us through the breaking. And in whatever way God leads us through the breaking, we have to trust him now as he leads us through that. But this is what we're rehearsing again as we come to communion. The breaking is also part of our Christian life. There will be days of discouragement. Say, well, the pastor came from Canada and told us there would be hard days ahead. <laughs> what a strange thing to say. I was telling Byron this the other day, that, <clears throat> you know, the marathon, 26 miles, it's a long race. Has anybody ever done that? No. Have you? Oh, my goodness. Way to go. So, so, so I've been told... When a marathoner starts out, there's something called the wall, right? So they're running 26 miles, and they say around mile 20 or 22, is there something happening back here? Yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention what we were all experiencing. So they say that in a marathon... Um, when they set out, they're going to, so you can tell us about this. I don't know. If, did you experience the wall? Yeah. Yeah, you feel like you're breaking down physically, emotionally, everything, right? But if you're a good marathoner, you know that's coming. So in the Boston Marathon, I'm told that there's something called Heartbreak Hill at about mile 20 or 22 or something. So it's a long uphill climb precisely at the moment when when it's going to happen anyway. Your body's breaking down and your mind is breaking down. So if you're a good marathoner, you have to know it's coming. If you're shocked or surprised by it, then you haven't prepared yourself. And as a way of following Jesus, you have to know there's going to be moments of discouragement. So the interesting thing is, how many have been on a roller coaster? You've been on a roller coaster? So, so when you're on a roller coaster, I really do believe I'm going to get to the end. I do. I just have confidence... But while I'm going down that hill, I'm still feeling everything, right? Feeling it in my stomach and everything. So here's the thing. As a disciple of Jesus, if you committed yourself, you know, you know he's got a hold of you. You know that. 
but you're still going to feel it. <laughs> and you're going to still feel the heartbreak and the discouragement. You just have to know that that is part of the journey. And there's going to be just like, well, Jesus was broken for us in a way that none of us can participate. He did it for us. He does it for all of us. But in some way, we're going to experience something of that. We're going to taste something of that. And when we come to the communion table and we break the bread, and uh, uh, at Westside, we've been over this last little while, we break it, we have a crispy sort of a wafer. So you hear snap, snap, snap all over the community as we take it. Snap, you can hear the snapping. That's the strange part of this. It's not just God graced me and accepts me, God blesses me, gives thanks for me. But somehow there's a breaking too. And that's the only way forward. And because God knows the way into the future and the kingdom is only through the breaking. He had to break his son and he does that with us. And there's something strange about it. We have to know that and we have to be immersed in that. But here's the final movement, uh, give. So we rehearse that in the text. Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks for it and he breaks it and he gives it back. And this is where we end this morning as we're going to take communion in the release of the bread and wine from Jesus' hands for the nourishment of others. That which is taken and blessed and broken is now given back and is greater than what first came to him. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and now it's more than what it was. And I want to suggest that this is finally the shape of our own Christian life that we're given back to the world. And that's amazing. Somehow when he breaks it, it's opened up that he can fill it with his own life and give it back. And this is what we're to do and what we're to be. But apart from his taking and blessing and breaking, we're closed off to the future and to others. But when we're taken and blessed and broken, we become more. We become opened up to others and to the world that is coming. I believe in the world that's coming. I believe in the kingdom to come. I don't understand all that. And there's some people who have it all figured out. I don't. Some people have it all mapped out. I don't. But I still believe it's coming. Because Jesus said it was coming. And I believe in Jesus. And somehow in this shape of being taken by God and blessed and broken and given back, I am participating now in that world which is to come. I am getting involved in it. I'm participating in it. And I'm being part of what God is doing somehow mysteriously through me. That's amazing. Even through me, he's bringing his kingdom. Through you and I together and through each of us, he's bringing his kingdom. But it came a certain way, didn't it? And it comes no other way. It doesn't come just because I rush out there and want to do good for the world. I have to be taken by him. I have to be prayed over and blessed by him. I have to enter into the breaking of Christ and the breaking of my own life in order for all this to be revealed and to come. And this is our mission now. So coming to Christ, we are sent back into the world. Um, and that's always the way it is. Jesus' words to Peter. You will come through the trial, and when you do, strengthen your brothers. 
Jesus said this, freely you have received, freely give. So we enter into the giving life, which is the true and final expression of this way of the Eucharist, the giving life, the sharing life. And so we're going to take communion together. But first, the first thing we do is look around the table. So we'd look around the table. <coughs> Shared life. And wherever we go today, if we're out and about, or if we're with people, we see people. We see them, we look directly at them. We realize that there's an invitation from us to them to enter into this participation, shared life of communion. Communion, community. And nothing is so basic as sitting at the table sharing bread, right? That's basic. That's what Jesus did. And what we're doing, proclaiming every time we do this together, we're saying this is the life we're part of. This is the Jesus life we're part of. Thank you. <coughs> Somehow in this moment, you renew us in our community, our relationship to each other. Somehow community is renewed in communion. And we worship you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Double, double, double dot hands at work dot org.